Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki with you this week once again, here with John Mitchell. This week we're going to be talking about division champs that we think are the least likely to repeat in college football in 2019. Then we're going to talk about long shot national championship bets and the three bowls that we each wish we'd been able to see in person. So before we dive in, John, how are you doing this week? I know you were a little under the weather last week, so hoping you're feeling better. Man, I'm feeling way, way better. Feeling feeling really up to it this week. Uh, we had a pretty excellent uh, weekend of sports watching this past weekend, plus, you know, other TV kind of stuff going on, you know, with the all kinds of spring games going on for college football fans, kind of the last foray into before the long night of the college football offseason really kicks in and we've got a whole lot of nothing to do over the summer for for that regard but you know also the NBA playoffs which got started this past weekend and then for me at least I know Zach you're not big into a lot of TV watching but Game of Thrones came back on you know so really glad I was sick last weekend and I was able to actually enjoy this weekend I hear you that's awesome I'm glad to hear you're back on your feet and doing well. Um, so, yeah, we were going to start this week with uh, division champions from 2018. There were certainly a couple of surprises that came out of the woodwork last year. And, um, you know, some of the division champs are obviously more likely to repeat in that status this year. Um, who are, you know, what, what, I'll just throw it right to you. Who is one of the teams that you think is least likely to pull it off again this next year? The first team that came to my mind when uh, we were uh, having our preliminary discussions on what we might talk about for this week's podcast was Pitt. Yeah. Um, and the ACC Coastal, I'm guessing that was probably one that rang pretty quickly in your head as well, just because... And, you know, the thing is, Pitt might actually be a better team next year, but the Coastal might be a little tighter and hotly contested. Because, I mean, Pitt was 6-2 and two in the division, but they finished 7-7 seven and seven overall last season. So, yeah. And, you know, we, we talked about this a few weeks ago. If I believe if Virginia wins the Coastal next year, it'll be seven different Coastal winners in seven years yep. or something like that, or six different in six years. I don't know, something crazy like that. It's just one of the most uh, one of the divisions with the most parity has been the coastal. So you got to figure there'll be a. It's probably unlikely that Pitt repeats, especially they lost two uh, really good running backs, Oleeson and Hall, from last season. Yeah. Uh, so a lot, a lot more is going to be on Kenny Pickett's shoulders uh, this year. Um, so I don't know if he'll be able to. Maybe they'll. You know, they've got some good young players that might be able to take the ball and run with it. But uh, they would be number one if I'm just looking at division winners from last year who I think might fall off. How about How about you? You know, um, yeah, I'm looking at the list of teams I jotted down, and that was right at the top. So um, pretty pretty easy one to pick out there, I think, in terms of they were just such a big surprise last year, Pitt was. But you also mentioned just the wide-open nature of some divisions, and that really brought me to look at Utah, you know, Pac, last year's Pac-12 South champion. And in similar fashion, that division has also been wide open where, you know, every team in that division has had the chance to play in the Pac-12 championship game. And, you, you know, you got to figure with teams like, you know, USC there, um, both Arizona schools, 
um, even UCLA sort of looking, you know, like they can continue to make progression under Chip Kelly, I think it's going to be really hard for that Utah team, even as great a coach as Kyle Whittingham is, like not to take anything away from him and that team will certainly be as competitive as they possibly can be. But that's just one of those divisions that I think it's really hard to to repeat. Um, it, it just like the coastal, and so yeah, that was the another one that I had really high on my list for the Utes not really being able to capture that exact same magic that brought them through last year. Well, if you look at both of those divisions too, Zach, it wouldn't be a big shock. Like I don't think either of us would be surprised if Pitt or Utah repeated yeah. in those divisions. You it's know, true. They. They might be the least likely of the candidates, but those are two wide open divisions. Like jumping back um, to the Coastal for a second, there's no clear cut team in the Coastal next season that you can really point to that's like, hey, they're going to run away with the division. You know, Miami's got a coaching change, so they're in a bit of a transition year. Virginia Tech had a ton of transfers from this offseason, so who knows what the Hokies are going to look like. Uh, under Justin Puente this year. Yeah. And then after that, you're talking about what Georgia Tech had a coaching change as well. Virginia is the only team that hasn't won the Coastal recently, so maybe it's their turn. And then the Carolina schools, Duke and North Carolina, I don't really have faith with Duke losing Daniel Jones, especially yeah. the, uh, the NFL draft. It's kind of hard to see that. And then you're talking about the Pac-12 South as well. I mean, there's USC's coming off a, a five and seven season. You know, they're the they're the team in the South. You got to think they're going to have a somewhat of a bounce back, and maybe they're the favorite. But I'm kind of intrigued in that division, not to get too far off track with what we're talking about. Yeah. By Arizona. Yeah. Um, you know, and Kevin Sumlin coming into year two with the Wildcats, and Khalil Tate coming back for his last season in Tucson. That might be a really intriguing team. If I was placing a, an early bet on the Pac-12 South and who might be the favorite to win it, I might go with Arizona. I think it's a really, yeah, I, it, it's one of those dark horse candidates that very well might pop up in those long shot national championship bets as well when we talk about that a little later. Um, they're just, it's one of those teams that is really intriguing because of the coaching, because of the division itself. And, um, you know, Khalil Tate had sort of a down year last year, but in 2017, coming off the end of that season, he was electric. And it, it would not be that far-fetched to imagine him recapturing that form this year that just made him come into 2018 as one of those early Heisman frontrunners. Especially if he could stay healthy. You know, he had the, the ankle issues and stuff last year that really, I think, bothered him for the entire season. You know, you get a an ankle sprain or something like that. That's not something that heals in a couple of weeks if you're trying to play on it. That's something that can be debilitating for an entire season so it'll be interesting if he can stay healthy I think someone could have a really good team I think that pairing together you know jury's out on the long-term success Kevin someone might be able to have at Arizona but I the the cards are in place for him to have a really big season next year and I think Arizona's got a really good shot at winning that division yeah well and I think the thing with a school like Arizona you know we even saw it under Rich Rodriguez before Sumlin is it's one of those schools where being competitive every three to five years is possible. And this really looks like the window is right there for that team. So, um, yeah, I definitely see where you're going with that, and it's a, a really sound pick. Another team, you know, looking at the group of five as well, obviously, since I'm 
I, I tend to veer that direction. I think one team that's sure. really due for a fall down is Buffalo. You know, Tyree Jackson isn't there anymore. He's looking to go pro. And, you know, he was really the heart and soul of that team and the reason why they were able to have such a a big year last year, the fact that they were able to play for the MAC championship and, you know, come into that game as the favorite. The fact that they lost that game really doesn't detract from what a great 10-win season they had. And, you know, the pieces just aren't there, I don't think, to, to repeat in that regard. They're one of those teams that's going to, you know, kind of probably do for that fallback. And you're going to see other teams like, you know, probably Ohio and a couple of those other schools in the East sort of rise back up. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. I like uh, Lance Leopold a lot, though, as as the coach there oh, yeah. at Buffalo. Um, I think that was a really smart and kind of outside the box hire they made getting him from, you know, the Division Two ranks a couple years ago. But yeah, you don't just re- Division Three ranks, actually. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, you don't replace a guy like Tyree Jackson. You're looking at a guy who's probably going to be picked in the third or fourth round in the NFL, all the physical tools in the world, just a, an outstanding player. And not to mention just him, they lost Anthony Johnson as well, yeah. a wide receiver who was a prolific receiver for that team. So losing him as well is pretty uh, a pretty big loss because that was their big playmaker on offense. So that's a, that's a really good point on them. And you got to think, along with Ohio, by the way, Miami coming off a six and two year in the division in the Mac East last year. Yeah. Uh, could, you know, really push for the division title. It was a really tight division, too, because Buffalo won it by one game. Both Miami and Ohio both finished 6-2 and two in, in the MAC. So yeah. that was a pretty competitive three-way race. And, you know, with Buffalo losing losing Jackson and Johnson, I think that's they're probably due for a little bit of a slip-up, even though I think the long-term prognosis for that program is still really good. Oh, yeah. Um, I could still see them winning eight or nine games by sure. the end of the year. And... Um, you know, I think that nexus of power will veer back to those Ohio schools at least this year. And it, it's just, you know, the way things lined up with rosters and everything else. Right. So uh, I guess moving on for me, I, I'm going to cheat a little bit because I like to cheat on these little uh, little things that we do every week. <laughs> uh, the Big 12 technically doesn't have divisions, uh, but I'm going to count you know, the two teams yeah. that made the Big 12 championship last year as the division winners. I think that's fair. Um, I think it's fair, right? I yeah. Agree. All right, good. Well, I think Texas is due for a little bit of a slip-up, and I think a lot of people are expecting. I won't be surprised if the Longhorns are ranked preseason top 10 just because if anyone's ever going to be overvalued, it's Texas, you know, because they've got the name recognition. Sorry to all the Longhorn fans that might be listening to the podcast, but that's just my opinion. I think they overachieved relative to what they had last season and a lot of times when you see a team overachieve and they're maybe a year ahead they tend to step back a little bit the next season it's kind of a big disappointment and I think the talent is there I think Tom Herman's going to have Texas really competitive for years to come but I think they were a year ahead of schedule I think Sam Ellinger is a really good quarterback but I think they lost several other pieces that could um you know, really affect them next season, losing a little Jordan Humphrey at wide receiver, mm-hmm. a guy like Charles Amina, who on the defensive line, who was, you know, multi-purposed on the, on the line. And, you know, if you look at more analytical aspects of Texas last year, you know, they obviously won 10 games, played for the big 12 title, won the sugar bowl. But still, if you look at stuff like S and P plus and stuff like that, Texas was, you know, a borderline top 25 team last year, not even just, top 10. So if I'm looking at a team 
like that. I could see them slipping up and a team um, in the Big 12. I think Oklahoma's obviously the the Big 12 favorite heading into the season. Uh, Jalen Hurts has looked really good in spring there, uh, so they got to be the favorite. But I really like Iowa State potentially mm, next year yeah. um, with Brock Purdy with another uh, spring of experience, an offseason of experience under his belt. I think they've got a shot even losing David Montgomery and Hakeem Butler on offense. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Neil Brown at West Virginia has a breakthrough year in year one with the Mountaineers. Yeah. And then I think Gary Patterson and TCU are going to take a big step forward this year as well. So I think the Big 12 is going to be really competitive. Um, and I think Texas is going to slip up. I think they're going to win eight, you know, go eight and four or something like that. Everyone's going to be really disappointed by them. But I don't. I, and I would say, I would say, too, Zach, they might even technically, if you look at it from a statistical standpoint, they might be better next year. Yeah. And just, you know, because, you know, just because you're better when you're next doesn't always equate to victories because there's so many variables that go in to college football games and stuff. So, I mean, it's tough to always equate it uh, by wins and losses all the time. Like we talked about Texas A&M a, a couple of weeks ago, how they might have a better team next year, but just because of the brutal schedule they play, they might end up, you know, seven and five or something like yeah. that. So yeah, yeah, uh, I, across, across the state, I could see Texas really taking a, a small step backwards next season. And I know a lot of people are expecting them not just to be a big 12 contender, but a potential playoff contender. Uh, they play LSU at home second week of the season. I think that'll be the big litmus test for them. Yeah. Really how that game goes. I think for both schools, we'll determine just where they fall in the packing order. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. I think those. That's another really great choice. And uh, just to stay in the the Power Five for a little bit, another race I think is going to be really interesting is the Big Ten West. Looking at Northwestern taking that last year. You know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about Hunter Johnson transferring there. So they do definitely have, they have the pieces to replace players that have left. You know, Clayton Thorson was a good player, but he wasn't necessarily a world beater on his own. So losing a player like that isn't necessarily going to completely knock you down the order. But, you know, as much as we've joked about Nebraska being overrated coming into this season, they're still going to have a better team. I could see that, you know, that game between those two schools really being, uh, you know, sort of an elimination game in that conference race. Wisconsin's obviously going to step it up. Iowa's always, you know, in in the hunt. Um, Purdue's obviously on the rise. And so Northwestern is one of those teams where, you know, like we talked about both with Utah and uh, with Pitt, it, it wouldn't be surprising to see them win it again. But I think they're also one of those teams where if we're looking at Power Five conferences, it, it's going to be really hard for them to repeat just because of the nature of the way their divisions have gone in the past. Yeah, no, I think if you're looking at, you know, we're obviously still – several months away from the college football season. I, I want to make sure that caveat is kind of explained that things could change. You know, Zach and I might decide a month from now that, hey, we're actually going to pick Texas to win the national championship. I won't actually yeah. do that, but I'm just saying things can change drastically in an off season. Oh, yeah. Um, and when we do a deeper dive, uh, I believe next week we're going to do a deeper dive into a spring, a spring recap and stuff might kind of change some perspectives. But I think the Big Ten West might be one of the more interesting division races to watch next year because, like you just listed, I mean, you got Northwestern with potentially an upgrade at quarterback. Clayton Thorson might not be 
the your typical um, prototypical kind of pro style quarterback or anything like that. But he was really good for what Pat Fitzgerald wanted to do. Yeah. And he really managed the game well. But Hunter Johnson's a legit blue chip quarterback, former five star recruit. He could really elevate Northwestern to the next level. Um, I don't I mean, Wisconsin was a big disappointment last year, but you kind of saw in the bowl game. Maybe they had figured some stuff out over the bowl practice. They've got arguably, you know, one of the top two or three running backs in the country. Obviously, uh, they lost a lot on the offensive line, but Wisconsin's got a, a 320-pound factory of offensive linemen. There's always someone season. to step so Yeah, they'll they'll have three more guys get drafted next year from this offensive line. So, uh, And then Purdue, obviously, they're paying Jeff Brom upwards of $5 million a year, so results better start coming in there mm-hmm. as well. Um, and they've got you know an electric playmaker in Rondale Moore, so they'll be a fun team to watch. Nebraska, obviously... Uh, with Scott Frost, uh, you know, you got to think they're going to take some strides in year two. Iowa's Iowa. God only knows what they're going to be next year. They could go 11 and one. They could go six and six. Who really knows what they're going to do? Yeah. And then, you know, Minnesota, I think, could take another step. P.J. Flex got the boat rowing, as he likes to say, right yeah. uh, up there. So, you know, they got a shot in Illinois. Honestly, like maybe they're a year away. But Lovey Smith's starting to make some. Uh, really inroads on the recruiting trail here recently. So they're starting to even be more competitive. So that should be a really fun divisional race. There's not a team in that division. I think that's going to be uh, a threat to win a national championship no. or anything like that, but there's legitimately seven teams week in and week out who will beat up on each other. It wouldn't surprise me if the division champion from that division ends up, you know, five and four, six and three yeah. in the conference. Yeah, I could totally see it being, you know, just a division that cannibalizes itself and really knocks, you know, everybody keeps knocking each other down and it's really a last team standing sort of thing. (laughs) So, you know, that's why I said on one hand, it would be a surprise to see Northwestern do it again. And on the other hand, Pat Fitzgerald always has his teams playing. It wouldn't be that big a surprise. No, I agree. Any other teams that you're looking at as well or... You know, I've got one, but it's pretty hot takey, and I don't want to get old takes exposed on the podcast this early in the offseason, but I'll whisper it. It's Georgia in the SEC East. Uh, I could see the Bulldogs taking a little bit of a step back, and and not maybe really a step back, but I think Florida might, you know, jump up and grab the division this year, or maybe even, you know, and this might sound really stupid, I think Tennessee's got a really good shot at taking a big stride next season. I don't think they're going to win the division next year. And Georgia's probably going to win the East. But if I'm looking at one of the the, the teams that's a heavy, heavy favorite, you know, you yeah. got Alabama in the West, Georgia in the East, and then Clemson, obviously, and the Atlantic of the ACC uh, as big favorites to repeat. Mm-hmm. Georgia's kind of an interesting case because I, I you know, they, they had, they were hit pretty hard by the transfer uh, portal this offseason. They had a lot of underclassmen go pro. They obviously have a ton of talent. Kirby Smart's done a great job recruiting. But the East is really getting there again. For a while, the East has been, um, until Georgia really got going and Florida got Dan Mullen, uh, was kind of the whipping boy of the SEC. It was like, oh, which East school is going to win the division and go get just slaughtered in the SEC championship game this year? Exactly. Was kind of how it was going for, for several years. So, 
Yeah, that's one that's probably a little too far out there. It's too early for me to make that pick, well, but don't be surprised if someone else comes up and grabs the East this year. Well, I think looking at that one, I think really, you know, in some cases we can look at this as teams taking a step back. And I think really like, and you definitely mentioned it, this is more a case of the rest of the teams in the SEC East taking that step forward. And so, you know, it, it is definitely a possibility of seeing Florida step up, especially in year two under Mullen. You know, once he gets that ball rolling in Gainesville, it really does create that second second seat of power in the in the division. And yeah, Tennessee is one of those teams where they could at least play spoiler a couple of times and really just throw a wrench into everything. Yeah, they've got so much talent coming back, Tennessee does. There's not many teams in the country that have as much returning production this year as Tennessee. So, And they were kind of a spoiler some last year, too, because, you know, they, they upset Auburn last year, which was a big surprise, and played competitively against a lot of really quality teams. So I think the gap is really closing in the East um, on Kirby Smart's team. And, and Georgia still could be one of the better teams in the country next year. It wouldn't surprise me if Georgia ended up winning the SEC and going to the playoff next year, but it also wouldn't surprise me if they ended up finishing second or third in the East. Yeah, exactly. And um, in that same vein, just looking at the other Power Five, you know, division champs from last year quickly, um, Ohio State is one of those teams where Michigan is definitely getting a lot of buzz this offseason. And... um, you know, just with everything going on, we talked about coaching changes earlier. Well, you know, that's not a, a small one to think about. And, um, you know, quarterback changes there, obviously. You've got you've got some, some new parts and pieces that are going to make that an interesting run to repeat, especially because of what else is there in the division. And then also Washington, you know, um, I think... We're both of the mindset that that's going to be another tight division this year. Oregon is definitely, if not, you know, the top team in that division preseason. They're at least a 1B. <laughs> um, right. Just with Herbert coming back with, with the talent they have there in Eugene, especially with the young running backs, a really experienced offensive line, um, a defense. And a loaded recruiting class. Too. Yeah. Exactly. And and so really the pieces are there for more sustained success again. So if it doesn't happen this year, it'll definitely be a 2020 burst, I think, even with Herbert gone. Um, But also Stanford, you know, they lost Bryce Love, but you have KJ Costello coming back. You've got, you know, um, they're all and even with Love leaving, like he was injured last year. They definitely had to deal with life after Love. And that defense is always, you know, a party in the backfield kind of team. And they're, they're, they're always going to be a very competitive outfit as long as David Shaw is there pulling the, pulling the levers. So, yeah, I could also see those two kind of dropping off. But I really didn't, kind of like you said with Georgia, it's one of those things where I didn't necessarily want to put them on a, a top three, like least likely to do it because they're obviously talented enough to repeat again, um, but it also wouldn't surprise me in the least to see them just tumble off. No, and that division last year was one of the most competitive in college football. You had four teams in that division last year win nine games. Yeah. Um, and there's so much talent coming back. Like you mentioned, Washington, Stanford, Oregon, but then Washington State's still yeah. right there. Um, obviously, they lost Gardner Minshew, but they got another transfer quarterback quarterback. 
uh, coming in from Eastern Washington, who, you know, could be really good as well. Uh, that division, I think it really comes down with Washington to whether Jacob Eason is the real deal for them or not. If he can be an upgrade over Jake Browning, then I think Washington's going to be tough to beat in that division, yeah. honestly, with everything else they've got coming back. But like you said, Oregon's got a ton of talent, great recruiting class coming in. Uh, two potentially, uh, with Oregon and Stanford, you got two potentially first-round quarterbacks in the 2020 draft with Herbert and Costello. Uh, so, I mean, that's a really intriguing division to watch. Uh, maybe not. I think that's probably the most intriguing divisional race, in my opinion. You know, we talked about the um, the Big Ten earlier, but that was more, you know, who's going to jump up and grab it. This one's like, and who's going to survive yeah. the end of the year to win this division? Uh, so, yeah, the North race will be a lot of fun, uh, a lot of talent. Uh, circling back over... Uh, to the Big Ten side of things, you mentioned Ohio State. What's interesting with them is, you know, Justin Fields hasn't really grabbed the starting quarterback job so far in the spring like many people expected. Mm -hmm. uh, Matthew Baldwin's really been pushing him. Fields didn't play uh, particularly well in the spring game. And, there, you know, I, I urge caution for everybody not to take too much from a spring game because there's no real game plan totally. in a spring game. It's a lot of just dialing up the simplest offenses and simplest defenses and going at it. So you don't want to drive too much, but it's interesting that Fields was splitting time with Baldwin in, in the spring game still. It's not something that he's been handed the job yet. So that'll be interesting to watch. And the clock is ticking on Jim Harbaugh this year to win that division, especially with Urban Meyer gone. Yeah. You know, he's 0-4 against Ohio State at this point. They didn't bring him to Michigan to go 0-4, no. 0-5 against Ohio State. He was specifically brought in to get them over the hump um, in the game against the Buckeyes. So this could be a deal where if he keeps losing Ohio State, he can win every other game, and he's going to end up getting fired yeah, from yeah. there because you can't lose to Ohio State every year. It's the when it's the Ray Perkins effect, the old Alabama coach yeah. who took over at Alabama and couldn't beat – or the you know Ray Perkins, Bill Curry, neither – I think I'm actually thinking Bill Curry couldn't beat Auburn, had just won an SEC title, but lost his third straight game to Auburn and was let go at Alabama despite winning like an SEC title. But and it's that level of importance for Michigan. Like yeah. you can win 10, 11 games every year, but if you're losing to Ohio State every year, it's not going to cut it. With Meyer gone, this is the year. If it's ever going to happen, you got to figure it's this year for Michigan. So Clock's ticking on Harbaugh. He's got to get it done this year. Yeah, and, and I think that's really the reason to watch Ohio State is because they do have that target on their back from from their big rival. Um, yeah, well, I think we you know we've pretty much cycled around the entire country. We talked about uh, limiting this, but I think it was probably a good idea to to do a complete sweep of it. So with that, we're going to take a quick break here, folks. And when we come back, we'll be talking about long shot national championship bets and where we might lay our own money. Stay tuned. Welcome back, everybody. We're here again at the Saturday Blitz podcast. I'm Zach Bagalki. John Mitchell is here with me again. And we're here now to talk about long shot national championship bets. So Odd Shark, um, one of our partners here at Saturday Blitz, put out futures bets for national championship odds. And we were going over the list and looking at some of the teams that 
are a little bit more long shot or have given a little bit longer odds where we might actually put our money. So I know this was something that really intrigued you a bit, John. What were uh, some teams that jumped out at you as good value picks? Yeah, the first one that I really noticed was LSU is sitting at like 50 to 1 mm-hmm. to, to win the national title next year. And I think that has a lot to do with um, the fact that they've got to go through Alabama in the West. Specifically, they've got to go on the road. But there's one thing that I've been kind of thinking about for next year is that LSU doesn't necessarily have to beat Alabama to go to the college football playoff. Like, I think if there's going to be a one-loss team that really makes it next year, if I was going to bet on it, LSU's probably the team just because they've got a chance, like we talked about a little bit earlier in week two, to go to Texas, you know, and if they can win at Texas, that's a huge resume booster. So if they win the game at Texas and their only loss is at Alabama, you know, in November, how many one loss teams are going to have a better resume next year than LSU when you talk about potentially beating Florida from the SEC East, getting wins over Auburn, Texas A&M, Texas? I mean, they could still make the playoff even having not beaten Alabama next year. So I think they're probably my favorite value, particularly because they've got so much returning talent from last year, you know, with Joe Burrow coming back at quarterback, they've actually got some stability at that position. They've got a lot of talented playmakers at the skill positions. Obviously always they've got a talented defense. So that was the first one I noticed that I thought was really good value. Yeah. I think that's definitely, that's one I had jotted on my short list. Um, Another one I was looking at um, also in the 50 to one range and this is probably the alumnus in me speaking, but Oregon at 50 to one seemed like a really good value as well. Um, just with such an experienced team and being, you know, one of the front runners in that division. Um, I think one thing that really, you know, pops out to me is just how experienced that offensive line is. Um, and with players like Calvin Throckmorton, who's been, you know, who, who's not just experienced, but also really versatile and who started at, I, I, it's at least three of the positions on the line, if not four or all five, he's been, you know, like having players like that, who can, who can really plug into any gap anywhere and be just as talented wherever they fit in. I think that sort of versatility is going to be a huge boon for Oregon this year. And so seeing the Ducks at 50 to 1 was, um, you know, it sort of had me rubbing my hands and wishing I was back across the border in Nevada because that's a really alluring pick, uh, especially, you know, not just as a fan of the team itself. But, you know, just as a college football neutral, you know, you look at Oregon and and the way they're set up this year, that's a really, and, and, um, you know, just the nature of how their schedule lines out and and how it could all play out for them. That's a really intriguing pick at 51. Yeah, I think just the same, like like you said, they've got so much talent. You know, Calvin Throckmorton, like you said, on the offensive line, Panay Sewell on the Uh offensive line as well. Like, they've got a lot of talent blocking for obviously a lot of good running backs and then Justin Herbert back one of the more talented quarterbacks in the country Oregon could really really make some noise uh next season in my opinion too so yeah them and uh at 51 them and LSU are both I think probably the best values on the board from what I saw um there's another one like I Auburn's at 33 to 1 and I don't think they're going to win the national championship but the reason that I 
think that 33 to one is decent odds is because I don't think they're going to win the national championship because, you know, with how things go with Auburn, when you're not really expecting them to be that good of a team is when they come out of nowhere, win the West, win the SEC and play for a title. Yeah. They they really spring up. (laughs) No one expected even with Cam Newton in 2010, no one in the preseason picked Auburn to win a national championship in 2013, when they played for the national championship and came up just short against Florida state, no one picked Auburn to be in that game ahead of time. They're coming off of what a three win season the year before. So this year, a lot of doubt surrounding Auburn. They don't quite have the quarterback position settled even after spring practice. But when Gus Malzahn's back is against the wall, I ain't betting against him because that's just the, he's the type of coach who when there's no expectations, he's really at his best. Uh, you know, when you expect Auburn to be good, they're not that good. But when you expect them to be bad, they're actually usually really good. It's true. So that's a I, I wouldn't put any money on it, to be honest with you, because I would feel kind of gross <laughs> about it as an Alabama fan. Uh, and I would take no pleasure in actually winning that bet if yeah. it turned out. So but that's one that I also saw on the board that was a little bit interesting to me. Yeah, I think that is a really great one. Um, and speaking of teams that I personally feel gross to put money on, um, I think another really incredible value, and just it, it kind of blew my mind that it was as high as it was, but Stanford at 100 to 1 odds seems wow. just, um, you know, for that high an odds, that's almost worth plunking down a couple of bucks just for the, you know, being able to to cash out on that. Um, they're one of those teams with, you know, who are always just so, you know, disciplined, so sound fundamentally, who have, you know, the veteran quarterback now coming back, who have, you know, just always a good defense, always a decent line. Um, you're not going to see a, a huge sack rate for that team, you know, on offense, but you will see the defense putting up a decent sack rate. So, um, I, yeah, I think they're one where just because it's so high, like when you see a team like that in triple digits with the odds, it's really tempting to lay down a little money because that's, you know, like we said in the last segment, just with how wide open that division is, it, it, it's going to be really interesting to, to see how that plays out. Cause Stanford could very easily just sweep in and, and take the entire division. Yeah, and, you know, that's kind of the murderer's row of divisions. So if they're able to get through it, even if they got a loss, I think they would be coming out of that division. If they can win the Pac-12, I think it would be kind of tough to leave them out of the playoff, obviously depending on whatever happens the rest of the way. You know, there could be five other undefeated teams. Of course. (laughs) And they get left out. But as a one-loss team or even, you know, potentially undefeated, Stanford would be tough to leave out. Well, if Stanford was undefeated, I think they'd be a really tough team to leave out. When you get to one loss out of the Pac-12, just the way perception has been the past couple years, it's going to be an uphill battle just because you have a selection committee and, you know, a dozen people sitting in a room making that decision who can really play on each other's preconceived notions of what a conference is and is not. And, you know, also looking at the division just further, um, you know, you mentioned Auburn at 33 to 1. Washington is also 33 to 1. Washington State is 125 to 1. So, and, you know, really good value for all four of those contenders in that division. And I think a part of it is they think, you know, Vegas is counting on 
the four of them beating each other up enough that they're not actually able to get into the college football playoff. But if one of them does, you know, like you put five bucks on each of those teams, you're still going to come out ahead no matter which one does if they actually do make that run. And there's not, you know, when you're looking at it, there's not a ton of teams that really stick out as playoff teams for next year. Obviously, you got Alabama and Clemson. Yeah. But past that, you know, you're thinking there's got to be two other teams that make it. So, I mean, it could we could have a 2007-esque season next yeah. year where everybody kind of ends the year with one or two losses, and then it's just chaos. And then, you know, jury's out on who actually gets in at that point, and that's that's the doomsday scenario I'm guessing the playoff committee hopes they can avoid and to, I, you know, keep away from the outcry. And I'd personally love to see them have to deal with it. Like, that right. is really, until they're forced to deal with something that difficult decision-wise, because let's face it, the past couple years, for whatever controversy comes up or doesn't come up, it's really been fairly easy for them to justify the decisions they do come down to. And yes, you can certainly have alternate takes on it. I've certainly offered some of those alternate takes here on the website and elsewhere throughout cyberspace and to, you know, people who want to be annoyed in real life as well. Um, but, you know, when you come down to it, they really haven't had a tough decision to make yet. And if it came down to a scenario like like 07, where just everybody's there and you, you know, it comes down to somebody yammering about we're undefeated in regulation. Um, I could really see that being a, a real litmus test for things moving forward and possibly that, you know, catalyst for pushing this expansion to eight games that, you know, you hear from corners of the college football universe, including yours truly. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think that, you know, just generally that whole division offers some great value. I want to I want to have a beer with the people who are betting like San Jose State a thousand to one yeah. to to win the national championship or Old Dominion or somebody like that to, to win the national championship. Because those people are those are deep thinkers, in my opinion. You know, you're really putting it down for that you know you put 10 bucks and you can win a, a ton of money but yeah those are the ones i think for me zach that really stood out I, I don't think there's any others that i would really even be tempted by um See, like you said oregon stanford washington all those out in the pac-12 make a lot of sense value wise because you're kind of searching for value there's no value <laughs> in putting money really on alabama or clemson because you're not gonna the return on investment isn't that good exactly. uh, for teams like that. Even Georgia, Ohio State, Oklahoma, teams like that, you're not looking at the best odds. I think Oklahoma was 14 to 1, which isn't terrible. Uh, but still, we're looking at more kind of crazy kind of odds, I guess. So that that's probably it for me. Was there any others that really stood out to you? You know, one team you mentioned in our last segment as a real dark horse was Arizona. And I think looking at their odds is a 250 to one team um, with Khalil Tate there with, you know, just and it being anybody's game in the Pac-12 South. If they were able to make that run, just to, if they could get into the four team field, I think they're a team that's set up with with a player like Tate who can really just take over a contest Oh yeah, they're set up to possibly have that sort of run. So just with it being that high at two fifty to one, it's kind of a mind blower that um, you know a team like that can be so, I think, undervalued. 
So yeah, that was the one other one that just kind of stuck out to me as well in terms of, of looking down the list and especially at those teams that actually do have the potential to make some waves in 2019. That's a good one. I, I like the fact that you mentioned Khalil Tate kind of being the X factor who could take over in a in a kind of playoff setting, the guy who you can, you know, put the ball in his hands and he can make plays with his arm or his legs. Yeah. Obviously, we didn't see it as much last year, but when he first really broke onto the scene in 2017, he was really just dynamic. It felt like every time that guy touched the ball, he could score. Yeah. And if he can get back to that, Arizona really could be a dangerous team. And, you know, obviously both of us know Arizona's not going to win the national championship next year. But in terms of being a really Pac-12 dark horse, mm-hmm. Arizona really could get there. And then you're talking about the potential for maybe a 2007-ish scenario where a team like Arizona could jump up and, you know, win the Pac-12 and end up getting a playoff berth because of all the parity everywhere oh, else. Yeah. And then in a in a one or two game setting, you're talking about Khalil Tate could be the best player on the field. Yep, exactly. And then all bets are off at that point. Totally. Given the way this season could really line up as another one of chaos, um, you know, a 12-1 and one Arizona team would look intriguing to the committee, I think, for precisely that reason of, you know, the entertainment value that could be brought to the table with that X factor in Tate. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. I think it would take kind of a crazy scenario, but if you're talking 250 to one, I mean, those kind of odds are exactly. kind of tough to pass on because you're not losing that much. Cause you don't have to put that much down to potentially win a lot of money. Yeah, yeah five bucks wins you 1250 if they come through. So, boom, podcast math, get you some. Um, so, yeah, you know, I think that's a much more intriguing option than like you were saying a team like liberty at 2500 to one obviously you know you could really bank big if you pull off a ten dollar bet on that and walk away with 25 grand but do you really if liberty have... wins the national championship i'm not watching college football exactly there's nothing right it's, it's... there's nothing right in the world if that school gets to win a national championship. exactly that's it's... the first group of five program to win a national championship or whatever get out of my face yeah especially if a team like UCF hasn't had the chance to play in recent years who incidentally (laughs) I might mention are also 50 to 1 odds to win it this year which I thought was actually kind of surprising they were given that much credit um consider or with like LSU that's actually really you know that's really impressive yeah um and again, that would come down to the committee not stiffing them for a third straight year, which, um, you know, I think the odds are better of a two-loss LSU team getting into the field than that. So Almost, almost certainly. So on that note, uh, we're going to take one final break, everybody. Um, and when we come back, we're going to get a little personal and talk about the three bowl games we really wish we'd been able to see in person. Stay tuned. Welcome back, everybody. We got one more topic this week, and and one thing Zach and I have talked about kind of in recent weeks was uh, some historic college football bowl games uh, that we wish we could have been in attendance for. Last week, we talked about some of college football's grandest venues that we wish we could have, we could see a game in, kind of bucket list stadiums that we'd like to see a game in. So this time we decided to talk about some bowl games that have come and gone that we wish maybe we would have been able to see. Maybe maybe some games that we actually did see on TV we wish were, we were there in person. And then uh, a game or two maybe that 
we weren't even alive for potentially. I don't know what Zach's list is like. We haven't discussed this beforehand or anything. So Zach, you want to go ahead and lead us off with uh, uh, one of yours? Yeah, certainly. Um, and I'll start it off with one of those games where I was not even born yet, and my parents probably were not even really cognizant of college football at that point in their lives. Um, but it's the 1968 Sugar Bowl. And I'm coming at this one because uh, Wyoming came into that game as the only undefeated team in major college football at the time. They were ranked sixth in the country. They were a 10 and 0 uh, WAC champion back when the Western Athletic Conference was still in its first decade of existence. You know, rest in peace to it. But this was way back when it was still a new thing on the horizon. But yeah, um, you know, we talk about Cinderella stories and BCS busters, and it's one of those things I, you know, love to follow. And imagine getting to see my Wyoming Cowboys play in the Sugar Bowl. Um, so they went into this game and took on LSU. And they were an, un, you know, the Tigers were an unranked team. But, you know, anytime you get the chance to play an SEC team, really basically in their backyard. Um, it, right. it, it's definitely something to savor. And, you know, this Wyoming team came into the game, as I said, you know, the only 10-win team in the country. Um, but they still came in as a touchdown underdog, and they ended up losing that game 20-13. to So while I would have, you know, left, uh, left New Orleans disappointed, one, it would have been a trip to New Orleans, so... And I sure. am, and I imagine in the late <laughs> 1960s that would have been quite a quite a trip to go to New Orleans. <laughs> so you know, looking at the time period as well. But yeah, just like what a treat it would be to see one of those classic Lloyd Eaton teams go into such an iconic bowl game and just get their chance. Um, it you know it's something where a couple of weeks ago I was talking about biggest I think it was our first episode the biggest disappointments and you know when I was first following Wyoming they wouldn't even get into bowl games when they won ten games and so just like getting to see them play in one of those you know four pinnacle bowl games would just be amazing absolutely amazing like I, I i just look back at that game and think even in loss even in defeat it would be well worth the price of admission if i could take that time machine back well you got to think in that game too there was a ton of people who probably thought oh wyoming is in the sugar bowl like they're i know lsu yeah. is unranked but this is going to be a walkover they don't deserve to be here and I know they lost, but, you know, to lose by seven, they obviously acquitted themselves pretty nicely yeah. in that Sugar Bowl. And what is an absolute road game? You know, I you're playing in New Orleans against LSU. That's a road game for anybody, it's especially a road game for a program like Wyoming mm -hmm. uh, coming into to Louisiana like that. So being able to acquit themselves the way they did in well, that game, you've got to feel like they probably won over some people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, just well, in being competitive. Well, and, you know, the big surprise was they were up 13 nothing at halftime. It was really LSU putting on a second-half adjustment and really being able to turn things around in the third and fourth quarters because that Wyoming team was damn good. It was, was really good, and they showed it. They showed it for a national audience there. Absolutely. So if we're... Sticking with the before we were born narrative, I guess, the one that really sticks out 
to me, being an Alabama fan, was uh, the 1979 Sugar Bowl. Mm. So sticking with the Sugar Bowl. Yeah. 1979 Sugar Bowl, Alabama, Penn State, number one versus number two, national championship on the line. Uh, affectionately known, at least in these parts, as the goal line stand, mm. where Alabama stopped Penn State inside the one-yard line four times in a row to preserve a 14-7 to win and Bear Bryant's last national championship winning team at Alabama, uh, Barry Krause coming up and making the stop uh, on fourth down. I think it was uh, Marty Lyons or, Bur- or Barry Krause who told Penn State, um, the Penn State quarterback or whoever, as they were coming to the line of scrimmage on fourth down, they said, you better pass. Yeah. And uh, instead they ran the ball right up the middle and Alabama stuffed them for the fourth straight time. And really how kind of one of the more iconic moments in Alabama football history happening in the Sugar Bowl uh, where there's been so much uh, stuff that's happened in, in that venue specifically. Getting to see that, the goal line stand. I mean, there's a – my dad's always had a print of the goal line stand of Barry Krause making the yeah. you know, iconic stop, stoning the running back as he tried to go over the top. He's had that print hanging up my entire life. So that's one that I think would be really uh, specifically because it's one of the moments my dad always talked about when I was a kid. I think being in attendance there, seeing that would have been just incredible. Oh, I, I completely agree. Even as somebody who's, you know, not, hasn't followed either of those teams, just such a historic game, historic venue, historic game, you know, historic end game to that storyline as well. So yeah, hard hard one to disagree with. I think you made a great choice there. Um, sticking with the one versus two narrative, the second game on my list was the 1963 Rose Bowl. Now this is a game I've talked about a little bit before in terms of um, the you know Wisconsin Badgers and being a fan of that team. You know this was the very first time that one met number one met number two in a bowl game. This was you know. A 10 and 0 US, you know, Pac 10 or Pac 8 at the time, USC champion. And actually, I don't even think it was the Pac 8 at the time because this is when you had the split in the Pacific Coast Conference. So it was still the American Association of Western Universities officially. Um, what a name. Yeah, exactly. The AAWU. <laughs> like, even the acronym doesn't flow out. Um, no. So, yeah, probably a good idea they went back to be in the Pacific Conference for sure. Um, but, you know, with that aside out of the way, you know, you have a 10-0 and USC team. And, and when any time you have a USC team breakout, it's just an iconic storyline. They were the top-ranked team in the country. And Wisconsin was, you know, the the number two team in in the country coming into that game. Uh, Had only lost one game uh, in the regular season, were the outright Big Ten champions, and were, you know, number two in the the AP poll coming into, into Pasadena. And it was one of those games that was really back and forth. You know, you have um, USC kind of putting on a clinic at first. You know, they, they're up to 21-7 at the half. They end up taking it to 35-14 by, um, by the end of the third quarter. And Wisconsin pours on 23 points in the fourth quarter and really, like, puts on a furious comeback bid that ultimately falls short 
Um, so maybe I'm a glutton for punishment considering I'm picking bowl games where my team's lost in them. I was about to say, there's a masochistic value to these kind of things. Why do you hate yourself so much? Why do you want to watch your teams lose so badly? You know, like the more I think about it, I don't know what I do to myself, but like just the historic (laughs) nature of that game, especially. And, you know, I think in both cases, just the way both teams played and played on a national level against really great competition. Um, Sometimes there is that, um, you know, aspect of having the moral victory to it that can be really satisfying even in defeat. And so, um, you know, glutton for punishment, though I may be, um, that was one game that has always stuck out in my mind, you know, from being a little kid reading books about college football. That's one that's always just been there in the back of my mind, like, oh my goodness, how cool would it be, you know, not just to see one versus two, not just to see the Badgers, but to get to see it all wrapped up like we talked about last week in such an iconic stadium as the Rose Bowl in Pasadena and in that setting, you know, that confluence of everything would again, even in defeat, make that one of those just moments to remember for a lifetime. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that's fair. I, even though I, I think it's a little weird that you want to watch your team lose so badly. I don't know. But um, <laughs> uh, I had a kind of a 2A, 2B again, because I, I, when, when you say three, I just can never keep it <laughs> three. So, uh, the other one that came to mind for me, and these are both Alabama-centric. My last one's not going to be Alabama-centric, I promise to everybody listening, but um the 1993 Sugar Bowl mm. uh, between Alabama and Miami. Uh, I That's the one of the fr- – I wasn't even born uh, when that game actually played. I was born two months later. Mm-hmm. But that was one of the games that kind of stuck out to me in my childhood because it was such a big deal. Like we had the DVD copy – not DVD, I'm sorry. We had the VHS yeah. copy of that game, and I watched it a dozen times like just because – it was maybe one of the most dominating defensive performances ever. Alabama was a touchdown underdog in that game. We're talking peak kind of Miami dynasty coming off in the team of the 80s coming into the 1990s. They were on like a 20-something game yeah. winning streak coming into that Sugar Bowl. Everybody was picking Miami to win that game. They were, I think, seven-point favorites. They were talking a lot of trash. Uh so says at least the VHS that I watched that was definitely Alabama centric. So, um, and then Alabama comes out and just rolls to a 34 to 13 win in the first post bear Bryant national championship with Gene Stallings as the coach. And just that Alabama defense, just completely swarming, uh, Heisman trophy winner, Gino Toretta, uh, guys like Antonio Langham, George T making uh, big interceptions and, and making plays on defense. John Copeland, Eric Curry as the bookends, just maybe one of the most dominant college football defenses of all time, yeah. really flexing their muscles and showing out in that game, uh, winning a national championship that most people didn't really expect to happen. The other one uh, would also be a Rose Bowl. Or not, I guess technically not a Rose Bowl because it would have been the BCS national championship game. I'm counting it, though. It was the... Uh, I guess technically a 2010 game, mm-hmm. but for the 2009 national title, Alabama, Texas, yeah. when Alabama won the, national, the first national championship, I got to see Alabama win. Alabama won that game 37 to 21. And just being at the Rose bowl for that game, getting to see your team win the national championship at the 
you know, the probably the most iconic college football stadium there is. Yeah. I, I think that would have been just an incredible moment, specifically if it would have been something I could have shared with my dad, mm. uh, being a huge Alabama fan, maybe potentially getting to share that with him in that environment uh, would have been, that would have been a bucket list item that would have definitely crossed off. That would have crossed off multiple things, getting yeah. to see Alabama win a national title in person, getting to see uh, a game at the Rose Bowl. So that's probably kind of, Two way to be for me, and not in no particular order. Those probably trump the '79 Sugar Bowl, honestly. But uh, just in terms of my top three, those would yeah. be uh, right there. No, I think again, both good choices. Like I remember watching that '93 game. I was ten years old, and that was really you know those first few years when I was really getting into following college football, not just as a like fan of my teams but you know really following the sport more broadly and that yeah coming into those games those Miami teams were supposed to be unbeatable and um just you know like Alabama in again that was the year that Alabama had to go through the SEC championship as well against Florida that was the inaugural SEC championship game and so you know, the the huge questions around how are the Tide going to do with having to had to play an extra game there and everything that came with that. And so all the storylines around that were so much fun. I think that'd be what a, what a sigh of relief for the SEC, too, like that Alabama won that SEC championship game. Like I know the SEC commissioner back then doesn't want to admit that he was rooting for Alabama, but deep down, imagine the first SEC championship game potentially costing yeah. the uh, costing the SEC a chance to play for and win a national championship because that was a really close game yeah. between Alabama and Florida. It took an Antonio Langham interception in the fourth quarter to kind of seal a 28-21 win over Steve Spurrier's Florida team. So a big sigh of relief that that didn't blow up in the SEC's face. But, yeah, that was the inaugural SEC championship game. That was a good, a good point and a, a great – game and kind of spawned you know kind of a system that we have today yeah and everybody playing I, conference champions. yeah i think it's a really good question if you know if alabama had lost that game and the sec had been shut out of the the national championship picture also in the first year of the bull uh it was the bull coalition at the time i believe it's coalition right. to alliance to super alliance, which ended up being named the BCS. So yeah, that first bull coalition year and you know how that was all going to play out. Just all the question marks. there. such a fun period for college football. Um, so yeah, I did. I wouldn't have minded being in the stands for that game either myself. That's um, the, probably the last time that the majority of the college football world was rooting for Alabama to win anything, by the way, because that's yeah. like one of the last times. They were underdogs in that type of game. Totally. Yeah, undoubtedly. Um, You know, um, for my last one, I'm actually going to talk about a victory that one of my teams had. You know, speaking about uh, misery, we'll go toward one that ultimately the season ended in misery, but this game was absolutely amazing. And I'm talking about the college football playoff semifinal at the Rose Bowl against Florida State. I knew it. I knew that was where you were going with that. (laughs) Um, You know, it was one of those games where Florida State came in on their hot streak, on their winning streak, 
but we're still like there were question marks about why they were even in that game and Oregon really showed why there were question marks about them in that game you know watching the Ducks come out and just completely demolish Florida State making Jameis Winston look incredibly ordinary in that contest um, you know, the the vivid picture that always just stands in my mind is, you know, the strip fumble and, and watching watching that get run back. And but just, you know, Winston was on his backside for so much of that game. Like it, 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 it might be the most dominant defensive performance I've ever seen the Ducks put on the field. And the fact that they did it on such a huge stage to set up a chance at the national championship which again, maybe this is just the glutton for punishment where I'm picking a game where I did it didn't ultimately end in a championship, but it, getting to win a Rose Bowl was getting to win a Rose Bowl. And even if it's only a semifinal appearance, still winning at the Rose Bowl was huge. Taking down the undefeated defending national champions is huge. One that's on a I think they were on a twenty something game winning streak coming into that twenty three or twenty four game winning streak. And, you know, just all those sort of cards aligning, including, you know, Marcus Mariota getting, you know, getting to play in that game right after taking the Heisman, um, you know, just all those different aspects to it made that a game that I, I loved watching on TV. You know, we had a watch party at our house that was absolutely nuts for that game because um, we were still living in, in Eugene at the time. And, um, you know how cool would it have been to make that track down the I-5 to Pasadena for that game? Yeah, that was that felt like the year that we were finally going to get the Alabama-Oregon game that we had talked about forever. So we can both deride the uh, Ohio State um, that season because they both Ohio State ended both of our team seasons that year. Cardell! <laughs> yeah, third-string quarterback Cardell Jones coming in and eviscerating both Alabama and Oregon for the national championship in the most unexpected fashion. But yeah, that was a great game. I enjoyed it too, just because, you know, Florida, Florida state was the defending national champion. Like you said, they had won 20 some odd games in a row at that point, but they had looked like they were ready to get exposed at any point that season. Yeah. And then Oregon finally did it in Pasadena. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't even close. I mean, Oregon was demonstrably the better team, um, in that game. And I really thought we were going to get that Alabama Oregon game. And Ohio State Alabama was that year was a really close game. And Ohio State pulled it out. We can both hate on the Buckeyes, I guess, yeah. in that instance. Yeah, it's one of those what if scenarios, you know, as historians love to play with counterfactuals and play with what if scenarios. And that's one that just constantly sticks in my mind whenever I'm writing about college football. Like, what if, you know, what if Alabama and Oregon had finally gotten that chance to play? What would that Oregon team have been able to do against Alabama's defense? Um, I can tell you, I can tell you right now, and I'll throw you a ball. And Oregon would have won that game. Yeah, and I and that's that's me ducking against uh, people who really follow my writing and stuff. Probably won't be happy with me saying that, but that Alabama defense uh, that was probably one of the worst defenses of the Saban era. Uh, maybe you know uh, uh, with Blake Sims at quarterback that year yeah. too 
one of the weaker kind of an offense that really set records but could be exposed against better defenses. Me personally, I think Oregon probably would have won that game anyway, even if Alabama would have surpassed Ohio State. And you never know, there's so many conflux of circumstances that could have happened in that game to change the circumstances. But me, if I'm betting odds, I would have given I would have made Oregon the favorite. And that's coming from a guy who would have been very much so rooting for Alabama in that game. Of course. Well, I think the one thing, you know, whoever Oregon was playing against in that game, the big storyline coming into it was losing Darren Carrington. You know, he'd gotten popped for his uh, cannabis possession and, you know, was off the team. And that was, you know, after that is when he transferred to Utah to go play for the Utes for his final season of eligibility. Um but like college kid smokes weed unbelievable who who would have thought in eugene oregon (laughs) in eugene oregon where uh, you know incidentally um within the year it was made illegal in or it was made legal in the state so lock him up and throw away the key exactly um (laughs) you know strip that eligibility um but yeah you know like those different you know storylines and and even against Ohio State, like, what if they had had their full complement of receivers for Mariota? I, I can ask all these questions till I'm blue in the face, but it, it's still a loss in the end, so. Right. So, I think the, the third one for me wasn't even um, an Alabama game. The one that really, maybe the first one that really popped in my head when we were uh, preliminary, having pre- our preliminary discussions about this was the 2006 Rose Bowl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which that's... was the Texas USC game, uh, where it was heavily favored USC against uh, Vince Young in Texas, and maybe I mean maybe the best college football game that's ever been played. Yeah, uh, honestly, I mean I was uh, pretty young still when that game was played, but you're talking about Heisman. USC had the last two Heisman Trophy winners on the team. They had Matt Leiner, Reggie Bush who had won the last two uh, Heisman trophies. USC had won the national title the year before, um, or a split of the national title the year before um, with LSU. So that game, you know, everybody expecting a USC win and Vince Young kind of putting the entire state of Texas on his back and somehow coming out with that win, that late touchdown run to win. And, and, and everybody was expecting a USC win. I remember as a as a neutral fan, I expected USC to win that game and Texas coming out on top and what was, you know, a back and forth game the whole way. I mean, being in the stands for that one and there's value to being a neutral fan in those kind of games too, because you don't have a dog in the hunt. You know, you don't have to worry about, Hey, if team a wins, I'm going to be happy. If team B wins, I'm going to be super depressed for the next week or so. You know, it's just, Hey, whoever wins, this is fun. You know, this is a blast to get to watch these teams converge and play each other and those were two absolute heavyweights going toe-to-toe for the national championship two loaded rosters if you look at both of those rosters um past even you know the Vince Young Matt Leiner Reggie Bush kind of guys just a ton of talent on both sides of the ball that game coming down to the absolute wire uh, and Vince Young coming up clutch uh, with play after play. And somehow, I believe it was, what, like a fourth and 13? He ran in a touchdown yeah. to win that yeah, game. Like, that's unreal. Like, that's one of the one of the kind of, you know, we talked about formative experiences as college football yeah. fans, and that was really one of them for me. 
as a neutral fan, really appreciating the value of, you know, two other teams that I don't even care about. Like I don't have any um, stock in either Texas or USC getting to see that was kind of incredible. Yeah. So I'm going to cheat as well now um, because, (laughs) uh, you know, I've given three and well, you've given four so far. So I just like, just to give, just to give a quick neutral shout out to that. I had on my plate as again, somebody who writes about smaller schools and Cinderella stories, um, the 84 holiday bowl, BYU and Michigan, you know, BYU taking the national championship and then the 07 Fiesta Bowl, yeah. Boise State, you know, Statue of Liberty, hook and ladder, like just everything that went down in that game. Um, both of those would be just absolutely incredible to get to see. I was um, not, you know, I was only two years old when the, the 84 Holiday Bowl happened. Um, so, you know, I've only ever seen that in an ESPN classic context. But I definitely remember watching that uh, Fiesta Bowl, you know, the wire to wire, just what an exciting game all around. I was actually at a wedding in Pennsylvania, sitting in a, in a hotel room at a Holiday Inn in Indiana, Pennsylvania. And um, just that game was like mind blower from, from, from beginning to end and getting to be there in uh you know, Glendale to see that game would just be absolutely phenomenal if I could turn back time and go there in person. If I would have had a, if we would have been doing top five, that 07 Fiesta Bowl would have been in my top five. Like that was an unbelievable game with an unbelievably unexpected outcome. You know, Oklahoma was heavy, heavy favorites in that Fiesta Bowl and Boise State winning, like you said, on the hook and ladder to tie the game. And, you know, you end up going into overtime because of that. And then the Statue of Liberty play with Ian Johnson running in uh, for the win. I mean, that two of the, like, most incredible plays, and that that's one of the most incredible bowl games that I've ever seen. Yeah. And that was probably, speaking again of formative experiences, that was probably my the thing that clicked in my head and probably the thing that clicked in a lot of people's heads that, hey, some of these group of five teams can really play. Yeah. They can really compete with the big boys and, you know, obviously Boise state did that and shout out Ian Johnson. Cause he scored yeah. the game winning touchdown and then went and proposed to his girlfriend. Yeah. And what, like what a moment that you think he preemptively planned on doing that before the game, or he just scored the game winning touchdown. and was like, ah, screw it. I'm going for it. Exactly. Exactly. I, I, I could, I, I might as well just keep winning all night long because that was, yeah. Oh, man. If you were going to roll the dice with how everything had gone for Boise State that night, they should have all gone out and bought scratchers and lottery tickets after yep. the game. Exactly. Yeah, that was, yeah, that's definitely one of those games where getting to be there in person as, as a neutral fan would just be explosively exciting. Thanks for not mentioning the 08 Sugar Bowl, by the way. I appreciate that. You got it. <laughs> Awesome. Well, um, everybody, thanks again for tuning in this week. It's always so much fun to get to talk to you all. Um, Hope you enjoyed our look both at, um, you know, the upcoming season as well as sort of the past of football and how it shaped us. Um, We'll be back again every Wednesday to talk with you more. So um, thanks again. You too, man. Appreciate, uh, Appreciate the time. Certainly. 
Take it easy, everybody. We'll catch you next week.